Hello, and welcome to the Quantum Realm, where we break down the Marvel Cinematic Universe piece by piece in release order. Together, we'll celebrate the stories, moments, and characters that we've come to know and love. My name is Jacob Devlin, and for this podcast, I will be your watcher, your guide to these vast new realities. Greetings to the multiverse, and we are going multiversal today in the quantum realm. Today's episode stands apart. Up until today, we've been chatting about the official Marvel Cinematic Universe produced by Marvel Studios. Today, we get to explore a movie that doesn't reside in that official canon. I put up a poll on the Quantum Realm Instagram about which of these movies we should do first, and this one won by quite a bit. And at the time of this recording in 2022, there's a lot of buzz about how the X-Men are going to fit into the MCU. In the year 2000, 20th Century Fox had the rights to Wolverine and to Storm and to all of our favorites. Fox wasn't a part of Disney yet, and so they got to do their own thing, and then when the MCU started, they weren't allowed to even reference the existence of mutants. And then things mutated. There have already been some cool things, some cool nudges to this Fox X-Men franchise, and with that, I do want to put a spoiler warning here right off the bat. Corey Luger is my co-host today, and we're going to dive deep into X-Men, just the first movie from the year 2000, but we will be chatting about some cool things that came up way later in the actual MCU proper. So if you're not up, caught up to some of the Phase 4 projects, namely WandaVision, Miss Marvel, and Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, you might consider saving this episode for a little bit later. Other than that, let's dive right in. And then, well, I I mean, I mentioned this on our Hulk uh, podcast, but I, so X-Men, the animated series, the the one that they're sequeling, <laughs> sequel rebooting, <laughs> I don't really know, the Disney Plus show that's coming, it's, it's a sequel, but it, I don't know. Anyway, that one actually wasn't the first X-Men animated show I fell in love with. I fell in love with X-Men Evolution. And that was, my, that was my animated show. Like that was the one I tuned in every morning on Kids WB. I watched that. I watched, you know, Jackie Chan Adventures, The Zeta Project, Batman Beyond. Like all of those were like my thing. Um, but yeah, X-Men Evolution was where it all started for me. And so around the time X-Men Evolution was out, this movie came out. And I, it was just so cool to see characters that I love from the cartoon, like popping up in live action. I think one fun thing about coming back to this movie today is that I was 10 years old when the first X-Men movie came out. And so when I first went, it was just something fun for me. You know, it was the the action and seeing all the superpowers. But as I got older, I was able to look back and see all these different layers in it and just the ways that it parallels the civil rights movement and, you know, our real lives in a lot of ways. And so this whole franchise, I think it's really fun how, you know, the older you get, the more layers you see to this. And there's just so much going on with all of this. And so I, I look back on, you know, my first memory of X-Men playing the, the Wolverine video game, which I found at Bookman's the other day. There, there's like the actual cartridge for the NES and it's going for $120. <laughs> so, um, but that I love that Bookman's is still a thing. Like <laughs> it's still a thing. It's still going know. strong. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, well, it's funny that you mentioned like the spectacle of watching, you know, all these, you know, super powered characters. If you look back at the first X-Men movie, 
there's not a lot of powers on display. Like they were very, I mean, at the time, like if you think about budgets for these movies, like there weren't really, like Spider-Man hadn't even come out yet. So there wasn't really a true superhero blockbuster outside of like Batman 89 or, or you know, the first Superman movie. Uh, so they didn't have a huge budget to go off of and it kind of shows like they don't show off the powers very much but they show like the real reason you're invested in the movie is the relationships between the characters so when that when they do use their powers you're like oh my gosh that's so cool but it's like it's it's nothing like what you'd see today in a superhero like if you compare the most i mean the most recent marvel movie was what love and thunder if you compare this like power showcasing in Thor Love and Thunder to X-Men it's kind of apples and oranges because they just it, it we've come so far in terms of what they can show on screen it's true yeah so you and I were talking a little while ago about how we've each probably seen this movie about 30 times you know just watched it over and over again since I was younger and so I rewatched it probably two or three weeks ago to take my notes and I just remember feeling a lot of what you said right now that there's not a lot of power going on it's it's just a lot of drama and there's a lot of you know kind of relationship building going on and that's something that I found more special now you know as a 30 something watching this movie <laughs> it gets more fun to look back and see you know kind of the drama and the layers behind this. Um, it's, it's also just so cool to and, and I think this is it's funny because I didn't feel this way because I didn't grow up with the original Star Wars trilogy, but you hear people lamenting on the you know newer Star Wars stuff where they're like, it's too CGI, it's too CGI. I will say I appreciate the first X-Men movie, like how practical the effects were as well. Like it, it didn't feel showy. It just, it's just like, this is the world and this is how it is. You know, like the way they use practical effects to show off Magneto's powers, a lot of it was auditory. So like you would hear the like, like the like metal grinding and stuff like that, but it, it wasn't super showy. So um, as time went on, you know, he starts to manipulate metal in different ways for, you know, better special effect. But in this first movie, it was like, they use a lot of practical stuff to, to draw it out. And I thought that was really cool. So do you remember watching this for the first time? Like, where were you in your life in 2000, July 2000? <laughs> I have to say, I don't think I watched this movie because I was also 10 years old when it came out. Um, I had actually just turned 10. I don't think I saw this movie right away. Um, I, If I remember correctly, I got a copy of a VHS and for the younger listeners, uh, that's a cassette tape that plays movies. Um, I got a copy of the VHS and I still remember the packaging. It was like the, the blue uh, background with like the bright white x and then i think it had like wolverine silhouette on it or something yes. um but i i got a copy of the vhs for christmas and so this came out in july i didn't i think i and maybe i'm even wrong about that maybe it was even later because that seems pretty quick for a release but i got i got a vhs gifted to me um and i watched it for the first time at home so it wasn't something i saw in the movie theater um but i, I mean <laughs> as a kid like it was still special. There was nothing like I didn't miss out on anything because I didn't go to the theater. I was I was kind of entranced from the very beginning. I remember I, I did go and watch this one in the theater and I actually went to this one twice. Um, and so I don't remember what else was in the theaters in 2000, but I just remember seeing the trailers for this. And then it was like the thing that I had to go watch. I had to see how it compared to my Saturday morning cartoons. And so I went as a 10 year old and you know I mentioned that I was just in love with all the superpowers and you know seeing how the characters translated to the screen and the, the fights and things like that, but this movie also holds other special meaning for me and that 
I started to understand things about myself. And now I look back and realize how ironic it is that X-Men was the movie that opened this door for me. But mm -hmm. I just remember looking at the screen, I could not look away from James Marston. I was so obsessed huh. with Cyclops. And now, you know, of course, we understand all the parallels to the real world and, you know, mutant rights and LGBTQ huh. rights and things like that. And so this movie totally opened that door for me. And I will always remember that. <laughs> to have like an openly queer actor like Sir Ian McKellen play a, a Holocaust survivor. <laughs> so, I mean, there's so many layers here, right? So um, you, you have someone who was uh, separated from his family at an early age during the Holocaust and the trauma with that. And then you have a queer actor representing how he was a, well, I'm making some assumptions here. I don't know Sir Ian personally, but I can only imagine he was putting a lot of what he went through, you know, during the queer civil rights movement. And, you know, he didn't come out until later in his life. It wasn't like he was out his entire acting career. Um, but I'm sure a lot of the prejudice and a lot of the homophobia that he faced, I'm, I can only imagine that helped him channel what really made Magneto a character that you couldn't stop watching. And I think Fassbender, although I, as far as I know, he doesn't identify as queer, um, Fassbender was able to do a lot of the same and really make uh, the character somebody that you just couldn't take your eyes off of, maybe for other reasons. But <laughs> it, it, like, I don't know, there was something just so special about the relationship. And to know that him and Patrick Stewart are like best buddies in real life, there was something so dynamic about their relationship and I didn't not like Magneto like you know the best villains are always the ones you kind of agree with I love watching Magneto especially hopefully one day we'll get to talk about X-Men 2 he has some of the best scenes um in that movie and so uh this one as well but but yeah he's just a character that I'm really drawn to am I correct and I, I heard this somewhere I don't know if it was like on reddit or whatever but when Stanley designed these characters he was kind of thinking about a parallel between like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King were supposed to be kind of like the Magneto and Professor right, right, right. And that he was really paralleling a lot of what was going on in civil rights. Like he started to really lean on that in these stories. Um, yeah, similarly, I've, I've heard that through various channels. You know, I've heard that on podcasts. I've read about that in articles. I, I haven't actually, if I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember if I've ever seen like a Stanley interview where he talked about it. I know he talked about the X-Men as a whole being a representation for the civil rights movement. Like that's very, I just, I'm not sure if he ever confirmed and maybe a listener can <laughs> drop us a note and, and <laughs> say that, but I, I have heard that parallel and it's very obvious in the way that they go about their mission in the film uh, and in the comics and just across the, the medium. So yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard that as well. That comp is pretty, I mean, pretty good considering when you were writing comics in the 60s, it was hard enough to get people to read your comics, let alone if you were trying to get them to read them with, you know, Black identifying characters. Like that was, I mean, like I said, getting people to read comics at all was kind of a, a struggle. Um, but to get people to read comics, especially if it's a civil rights story, we have the benefit of time on our hands to say like today, yeah, like you should most certainly tell stories accurately as possible and, and get the right people behind it. You know, that's the reason why Black Panther is the cultural phenomenon that it is. Like Ryan Coogler told a story that was special to him and that uh, I, 
quite frankly, a white director wouldn't have been able to tell that story. So mm-hmm. I totally, we have the benefit of time on our hands, but I mean, in the sixties, you have Stan Lee who wants to tell these stories and he's a white man. And so give him mutant powers. Like you can't really, you can't really draw black characters at that time and have a white audience. So let's, let's create a comp. Let's give him mutant powers that everyone despises for no reason other than they were born that way. Definitely. And I, I read a quote from him recently about the creation of the X-Men and the, the mutants and how at a certain point for him, it was kind of like the easy thing to do because he had written all these origin stories already, you know, Peter Parker getting bitten by a spider and, you know, all these different origin stories. And then with the X-Men, it was easy, you know, it was just like, they're all mutants. Like now I don't have to write origins for all these. Right. This is one they, yeah. They, they hit puberty. That's their origin story. <laughs> The first thing that I made a note about was Xavier's monologue, just about mutation and evolution leaping forward, and we get the whirlwind opening credits. And every time I rewatch this movie, I think people really want Morgan Freeman to narrate their lives for good reason, but I would really love for Patrick Stewart to narrate my life. He just <laughs> has a very soothing voice where like everything's going to be okay, but it's also very epic at the same time. So. Right. Um, and then so after our credits and our monologue on mutation, we start to see all of these different origin stories. We go all the way from Poland, 1944, where young Magneto is brutally separated from his family at a consecration camp, and he's pulling open the the gates of the concentration camp with his metal powers and flashing all the way to the not too distant future in Mississippi where it's basically just rogue kissing a guy and it's not going well for him. (laughs) So we have everything to a very, you know, kind of grounded everyday situation, which I think is really cool. Well, regarding what you said, like uh, about the film's opening with Magneto, uh, for any listeners who are confused, we are not talking about first class. Although (laughs) when I watched first class, I legitimately thought that they just used the same footage from this movie in that movie. Uh, because it's almost a shot-by-shot remake of that scene. Um, They go a little bit further into Magneto's kind of upbringing in the concentration camp with Sebastian Shaw and and kind of how he manipulated him to to use his powers uh, for his purpose. But um, but yeah, I... When I watched First Class, and I know that this has almost nothing to do with the movie that we're talking about, but when I watched First Class and I saw them recreate the scene, it even looked like the same little boy. I was like, what is going on? They just like lifted this whole scene from the first X-Men and, and threw it in there. But no, they actually remade it, which I was I was like, that's pretty impressive because it looks almost identical. I remember having the exact same thought. I was like, is there extended footage that we never saw? Because <laughs> <laughs> it looks so strikingly similar and it's, it's yeah. just how they were able to do that. that yeah. yeah. And um, it was also, it's interesting how... I think Rogue has always been kind of a fan favorite from the animated series and even from the comics, but it was kind of interesting how much of an emphasis they put on Rogue for this first movie. Because, you know, when you think about X-Men, especially, you know, the comics first class, it's, you know, Iceman, Angel, Beast. Rogue didn't come in until much later. So it was just kind of interesting that they decided to make Rogue the focal point of the first movie. And you could tell, and I actually read somewhere that I think this is the only X-Men film that's not based on a comic. It's a fully original story. So if you think about like X-Men 2 is based off of um, the Weapon X program. The Last Stand is the Phoenix Saga, et cetera, et cetera. Like you, you start to go through all of the comic books. But the first movie is kind of a completely original concept, which 
I think is kind of cool because I don't, I don't think we've really seen something like that. All of the MCU adaptations are exactly that. They're, they're adapting a, a comic book storyline in one way or another, but to have like a completely original story, I think that's, that was pretty cool. Definitely. Yeah. So I, I remember kind of looking up these different comic book stories and this one didn't really have a parallel. It is, it does very much feel like a, an original thing and kind of like a long episode of the cartoon. <laughs> so, so I really love that. Um, what do you think about Rogue in this movie? Like, how do you feel about the casting of Anna Paquin and kind of how she was portrayed in this movie? It's it. Well, I have to like, think back to when I, I guess when I first, when I first watched it, I wasn't a film critic by any means. I was, you know, a little kid and I was just like, oh, cool. She could drain people's powers. That's awesome. Uh, they, they, they departed from the character quite a bit with Anna Paquin. She doesn't have her same origin in any way, shape or form. So there's no, I mean, for obvious reasons, there's no Miss Marvel, Captain Marvel connection, um, which those of you who don't know Rogue's past, a lot of her powers uh, came from using her energy power absorption on Captain Marvel, AKA Miss Marvel back when she was Miss Marvel. And uh, she held on for too long and put Miss Marvel in a coma. And then that was, that's how Rogue was able to fly and do a lot of the things that she was able to do. So um, that's a fun little <laughs> comic backstory, which would be very interesting if they included, now that they're relaunching the X-Men in the MCU, if they somehow tied those together. But um, yeah, it was a huge departure from, from her origins in, in established canon. And so even in the animated series, they, they had a Miss Marvel subplot with Rogue. So it was the first time that it was just like a completely new version of the character. I thought Anna Paquin did fine with what she was given. I, I, don't, I don't not like her. I think as the story goes on, you, I, I think the writing leads you to kind of not like her as much, especially when she's like pushing to get the cure. And it's like, well, you should be proud of, you know, as, as Mystique would say, mutant and proud. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't really have too much to say about her. I don't, I don't think she did a bad job. I don't, I wasn't like, she's the best part of the movie. She's just, she's working with what she has. That's a good take on it. I really like her in this movie. And then I, I agree that like kind of as it goes on, the, the writing, she kind of takes a backseat and then she, you know, the, I don't really like that here storyline that we get into for, for the third movie, like her part in it. Um, but I really like her in this movie and I especially like her in this scene where, you know, she, she kisses a guy and she like drains him and it's just like this mortifying thing. And I think that actually kind of scared me when I, when I watched it in the theater, I was like, oh, this movie's going to be scary, you know, but yeah. <laughs> Because it's it's just so like grotesque when it like it like ripples his skin and things like that and um, but you also feel for her I think it's just kind of one of those things that like adolescents watching this movie it's probably like one of their worst nightmares is having this romantic encounter and it going wrong somehow. Right. <laughs> it's funny that you mention <laughs> your James Marsden awakening. I don't know that I necessarily had that uh, with James Marsden. I mean, I I think he's incredibly attractive, but I just don't think. I went there with him, but I do specifically remember thinking how I'm, how much I wanted to be kissing the boy that Rogue was kissing. <laughs> was like, oh, he's cute. So that was my awakening: was that I wanted to be the one kissing him, not Rogue. But that was, that's a whole that's a side plot we can get into later. Totally. <laughs>
Um, so we have these two origins. We have, you know, Magneto, we have Rogue, and then we jump all the way to the U.S. Capitol, where we get our first glimpse of Jean Grey, and she's talking to Congress, and she's urging them to vote against mutant registration, which I totally forgot this was even a plot of the movie, because it's so, it's kind of subtle in this, um, but she's making a case of how these powers manifest of puberty and mutant registration would force all of these mutants to reveal themselves and their powers. And she gets into it with Senator Robert Kelly. He stirs up the room and plays on their public fears and totally kind of shuts down her talk and um, asks Congress to think about, well, are these people actually dangerous? There's a girl that can walk through walls. There's all these different things that you don't know about and you should be afraid of that. And so they get into this kind of heated argument in there, which is very strikingly similar to things that we see today in Congress. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love uh, when, you know, Gene tries to push back a little bit and says, you know, the wrong person behind the wheel of a car could be a weapon. And Senator Kelly is like, yeah, but we license people to drive. And she's like, yeah, but not to live. Um, and I always, I was like, oh, good clap back. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, way. let them know, Dr. Gray, let them know. Uh, but, but yeah, it's, uh, it, it's wild to me that 22 years later, these are the same issues we're talking about. So it kind of holds a place in time in that way. It's true. Yeah, because there's also a line that he gives about like, people should have the right to know whether their teacher is a mutant or whether they're going to school with mutants. And that looks very similar to things that we're seeing with like the don't say gay bill, bill right now. Yeah, I was, I was like, insert anything in Florida right now. Anything in Florida, right? <laughs> so, so this movie just is so relevant today. And um, but yeah, I do love that line from Jean Grey about we don't license people to live. And I and I just love her in general in this movie and in this franchise. She's phenomenal. Um, and and it starts right here. You know, she just has so much charisma in this scene. And and so so I love that. And in the background, we see that Charles Xavier and Eric Lencher, Magneto, have been watching this confrontation going down. They're kind of outside the chamber and they leave and they experience their own conflict of ideology. So we see them interact for the first time. We are the future, Charles. They no longer matter. I remember. <laughs> uh, no, I, yeah, so homo superior is, is what um, Magneto would say. And yeah, it's interesting because he knows firsthand what happens when you're different in a society that won't accept you or that wants to have power over you. So this idea of registration, I mean, that's an obvious comp to the Holocaust and, you know, being branded with numbers on your on your forearm. And so he gets it. And I think that's why it's kind of easy to be in his on his team here. But also he's talking about being superior to everyone else so i mean it's it's a you know it's a love it hate it relationship with him (laughs) because you're like (laughs) i get it but also calm down (laughs) Um, but you also see something interesting here which i didn't i I mean i didn't really think about until later on but he's not wearing his helmet which uh, as many people would know uh xavier able to read minds magneto uses the helmet to among other things keep charles out Um, but it's super fascinating because he's not wearing it here. And he says to Charles, you know, you're digging around inside here. And he points to his head. He's like, what are you looking for? And Charles is like, I'm looking for hope. And the ability, this just kind of shows how strong of a mutant Magneto is because the ability to hide his plan, he's already concocted his plan. He knows what he's going to do at the, 
at the um, UN summit. He knows what he needs. Like he, he's already started to put pieces together. He's already planned the, the kidnapping of Senator Kelly. So the ability to block that from Charles without his helmet it kind of speaks to just how, I mean, he's a alpha level mutant. So it just kind of, or no, not an alpha level, excuse me, an omega level, an omega level mutant. So it just kind of speaks to just how strong he is to be able to block the, the strongest telepath in the world. I totally never thought about that. Yeah, the Charles should have been able to pick up on that plan right away. So, well, that's new insight for me. <laughs> so um, I love the tension between them though. You know, the, the, the quote that I keep on thinking about is where, um, he asks, why do you ask questions that you already know the answer to? And that keeps on coming up throughout the movie. And I say that to people in my everyday life. <laughs> I was like, why do you ask questions to which you already know the answer? <laughs> I will use that anytime I feel like it. <laughs> As you should. <laughs> and then just the whole feeling that we're left with when they, they part ways and, um, and Eric tells him, you know, I'm going to bring you hope, but I ask one thing in return, stay out of my way. Just like, oh, you know, the conflict between them, that tension that's ever brewing. And so, mm-hmm. so then it cuts to Northern Alberta, Canada, and Rogue is on the run. So she's run away from home and she witnesses Wolverine in a cage fight. He's this reigning champion in these cage fighter match- matches. And people don't like this because he just keeps on winning. And so they're booing him and just waiting for somebody to finally take him down. And so she she sees him take this guy down. There's the, the point where the guy gets in the ring and he tries to like take him down and he connects with like his his fist and you hear like the, the metal in there. <laughs> Um, and then after he wins, she sees him at the bar and there's this tense confrontation. There's all these microaggressions going on in the bar too, where she sits down at the bar and the, the bartender like moves the tip jar away, like thinking that she's going to get into the tip jar. And that was one of those moments that I found really, um, potent for me today. Um, and, and she sees him come back and, Uh, order a beer and the guy that he beat in the cage match comes back and tries to pick a fight with him again that he owes money and so that's the first time that we see Wolverine pop his claws and that's still just as exciting for me today 22 years ago as it was as a 10 year old finally seeing that happen on a live screen so exciting and gross (laughs) I remember (laughs) the the close-up of the camera angle when the claw was like actually coming out of his hand I was like oh that's gross uh, yeah, you can like see his skin opening and like yeah. in the cartoon, you just see him wearing gloves. So it's not really a thing you think about. But <laughs> yeah, and then later on when Rogue asks him, you know, does it hurt? He says every time. Um, obviously he has healing factor, but if you think about like every time his skin rips open, he's in pain and just like how often he does that. It's, uh, it's kind of sad to think about, <laughs> but yeah, no, very visually cool scene. Um, and I don't know if you were planning on talking about this, but uh, the the scene happening on the screen. Is that when we see Hank McCoy? I know we see him later on in like X2 at some point. I remember seeing him on the screen and thinking like, oh, is are they teasing Beast? I don't know if it's in this one or um, I'll have to take a look at that and see if he's- I, I remember there's something on the TV that, that Rogue is initially watching. And I apologize to our listeners because I'm not remembering correctly. I'm getting my movies mixed up. But yeah, I'm pretty sure you see um, Hank McCoy on the screen and it, w- it was a tease toward what's to come with Beast. Uh, you know, we wouldn't see him until Kelsey Grammer took on the role in X-Men 3. But uh, but yeah, they were kind of laying the breadcrumbs early on for, for what was to come. 
Um, so at the end of this, you know, he he pops his claws. He like totally freaks everybody out and leaves the bar. And Rogue sneaks in, sneaks into the back of his camper. She gets the sense that she'll be safe with this guy. Uh, as moody as he is, he's going to keep her safe. And so she sneaks into the back of the, the camper. And that kind of concludes the, the intro to this movie. And so um, getting into the, the next sequence, it's kind of following Wolverine, Logan, you know, down the road. And a tree comes down and causes him to wreck without his seatbelt. You know, they've had this conversation about how he should be wearing a seatbelt. And then he wrecks right away and he's thrown from his truck um, that's where we see him heal and he you know he heals from his wounds very quickly and he senses danger he you get this um, image of him you know sniffing around he, he like smells something because that's part of his animal senses and rogue is trapped in the truck she's still you know kind of caught in there and that's when Sabretooth attacks and that's kind of our first like big fight of the movie and it's like Sabretooth jumping out and and attacking, smacking Wolverine around uh, with Rogue still in the truck. But that's also the first appearance of Cyclops and Storm. So that still makes Your me- boy. <laughs> Your <laughs> so boy comes in. Totally. <laughs> so, um, so Cyclops and Storm, and there's the cool snow effect. And for people who knew the cartoon and like know the comic and stuff, as soon as it starts snowing, you know the, the storm is on her way. And that's just a really exciting transition. So. So big fight between all of them. There's the blasters, there's the snow, and they managed to get Rogue out of the truck just in time. And that's when we cut back to Magneto's kind of headquarters, wherever he is. And he, um, Sabretooth comes back and he was supposed to bring back one of the mutants. We all kind of assume that it's Wolverine at this point, um, but he's come back alone and um, Eric is really upset that Charles has intervened. He just knows right away, like, okay, Charles is the reason why this failed because the X-Men were there. And, and then he starts talking about the UN summit. So we get that tease of kind of what's coming up in the third act and what Magneto's big plan is. He just says the UN summit is approaching and we don't really know anything else at that point. So, but lots of mustache twirling. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to think if there was anything uh, particular that I wanted to kind of... Uh, touch on uh, everything you just covered. I mean, good synopsis of, of what happened next. Um, I remember watching the scene where the tree hits the truck and I had to like keep playing it back because I, I didn't understand how the tree hitting the front of the truck caused the like front of the truck to collapse on itself and <laughs> totally random but it was just like the the effect that they did for that shot made no sense to me and I kept watching and but then Rogue was fine even though the front of the vehicle like essentially collapsed on itself so I was just like what is happening in this scene um I remember just watching it back and I like rewound it I was like did I miss something like what is going on uh <laughs> But I mean, again, we have the we have the benefit of time on our hands, so we know the relationship between Wolverine and, and Sabretooth because of later films. Uh, but if this was kind of your first introduction to the character, you would assume Wolverine just smelled something off, you know, like using his heightened senses, uh, smelled, you know, somebody in the vicinity. But given what we know about their history together, you know, it's very possible he he sensed it was Sabretooth because he would be familiar with his smell. So. Um, again, the benefit of, of future storytelling, telling us what happened in the past <laughs> is, is helpful. Absolutely, yeah. And so 
This brings us back to the X-Mansion and it's our first time in the X-Mansion in this movie actually. So um, Wolverine also known as Logan in this movie. So Logan wakes up in a panic and he's confused at the X-Mansion. He hears Charles's voice and it's kind of whispering and bouncing around the walls and he's following the voice. And that's, you know, kind of leads him through, you know, these hallways, he sees kids running around. And, and I love that we see this from his perspective, you know, kind of getting the, the mystery of it and not really understanding where we are. And so when he finally gets to Charles, he's not very amused with his introduction to the X-Men. He has all these, you know, nicknames that he's making fun of, but, um, but something about Charles really intrigues him because it seems that he knows more than he should. And he has this promise to, to help Logan understand his past. So, so I really love that. Yeah, you, you gently glossed over uh, a fun little uh, Easter egg with Kitty oh, Pride. Um, yes. So her running through the, the door and, and him, I think he does refer to her as Kitty. Obviously this uh, role would later be, re well, twice actually. In X-Men 2, you see Kitty kind of fall through her bed and then run through the mansion and it's not the same actress. And then once again, in Last Stand, it's Elliot Page. Um, so just... That obviously <laughs> they didn't really know what they wanted to do with with Kitty until the third movie, which is a shame because I really wish we would have gotten, um, you know, Shadowcat is such a cool character uh, in in the comics and in the animated series, especially again as a fanboy of X Men Evolution, she's one of the like key players in that show. So uh, it's nice to see her, but I wish we would have gotten a little bit more <laughs> from that character throughout the series. Yeah, and the funny thing is that in that same scene, I felt the same about Jubilee because I think we see Jubilee. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and she's such a big player in the, the cartoons and she was like one of the first ones that I like really knew, like, okay, that's Jubilee. And then so when I saw her in the movie, I was like, oh my gosh, Jubilee, why don't we get more of her? <laughs> and, um, so, so I wish that we, I hope that we get some more of her like in the, the coming, you know, MCU versions of x-men because she's a really fun character but right. i just appreciated the the easter egg that she's she's in it so <laughs> and then we get our cool training montage and charles is kind of walking him through it you know we are the x-men this is the x-mansion and um and so we see all these cool images of you know cyclops using his blasters to you know hit the the plates that jean gray is throwing with her mind and we see them playing basketball and like teleporting to play basketball and just all these fun things going on to, so that they can train on their powers and i also really love the line that comes up in this training montage where charles says anonymity is a mutant's first defense against the world's hostility and so Again, just another really cool parallel to, you know, like real world um, experiences for marginalized groups. For sure. That's awesome. So I remember you mentioned that you were a really big fan of Nightcrawler. And so um, that, that would have been cool to get him in this movie. I, I'm, I'm glad that we got him in the second one. The, oh, not only did we get him, we got yeah. <laughs> what is quite possibly the best introduction of a character in any movie if you have not seen x2 x united please pause this recording <laughs> come back to us uh go watch x2 uh nightcrawler's introduction in that movie remains and it's at the very beginning but it remains one of the coolest character introductions of any comic book superhero movie i i will never forget just how cool it was seeing him go through the white house and just like show off his powers it was it was amazing one of the best 
I think one of the best comic book scenes I've ever seen. So uh, yeah. Anyway, side note, huge Nightcrawler stand over here. He's my favorite X-Men. Uh, he's one of my favorite characters in general. So I love him. Love, love, love him. I don't know. I got some weird chemistry from them. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, adding Gambit might've just been a lot of love triangle drama very early on if they were going to continue the the bobby storyline which you know they didn't need to rogue and bobby don't have any kind of like history together but again this was an original story um in terms of your question i i immediately go to x-men evolution and i'm like ooh, who did i love on that show i loved uh spike uh storm's nephew uh he was such a good character in that show he has the ability to so like if you if you know logan's like bone claws spike essentially has those but he can shoot them out of his body so he's just essentially shooting like bone shards out of his body which is kind of gross but uh spike is awesome i'm trying to think um they did i mean they have a lot of the characters i mean we later get characters and i think that's why it's hard for me to to answer this question because i'm like we get havoc later we get um angel later which you know to mix success <laughs> um i'm trying to think if there's any character that we haven't i mean you mentioned jubilee jubilee would have been good um there's a character boom boom in x-men evolution who's kind of like a bat she's like a bad girl she's like the you know she gets into trouble and she's always the one like causing issues she's a little bit of a flirt and i think having a character like that would have been fun i love boom boom in x-men evolution um and then you have like the newer class like wolf Spain and and all of them so yeah I don't know I think they could have I, I think they did a good job kind of keeping it localized and centralized to the characters we got because if you start adding too many characters then it's just like a who's who cameo show um so I think they did a good job reeling it in for the first movie and then expanding the cast as it went along but but yeah just some notable ones I I think the, those would be the ones I would say. So the next 15 minutes or so are all about Senator Kelly and really. So he has not a good time in, in this next 15 minutes. So he's on a helicopter ride and he's talking about gun registration in comparison to mutants. And Mystique is his fellow passenger. And, and every time I watch this, I'm kind of grossed out when she starts like smacking him around with her foot. I'm just like, that's really gross. <laughs> um, but I should have said, I, I not only is Nightcrawler's first appearance awesome, Mystique's first appearance is also really cool. Like, you know, she's supposed to be Henry Guyrich and then all of a sudden starts transforming when Senator Kelly's like, where are we going? Because he realizes they're not going where they're supposed to be going. And then, you know, it flashes to Toad and he's flying the helicopter. So you start to see the Brotherhood of Mutants come together. Because at first, you know, you see Magneto and then you get a glimpse of Toad when Sabretooth comes back and he's like, he's not going to be happy. And, and so you start to see Charles is building his team to, uh, you know, defend humankind and magneto is also building his team to rise to that challenge so you you get kind of your first look at the brotherhood of mutants and they're starting to come together yeah they're fun and i love her her line where she says uh, you know people like you are the reason why i was afraid to go to school as a child and then so relevant like so relevant i mean i think any underrepresented identity can can hold true to that you know if you're if you're a person of color and and you're ostracized because of that if you're a queer person if you're a person with disabilities i think there's so many like it's just it just rings so true like there are people like senator kelly that make life miserable for anyone who's different 
And I think, I think that's why this movie is so powerful because literally so many people can relate to that. Yeah, it's true. And so that's why I love this movie more and more as I get older, because when I was younger, I was like, oh, she's cool, but she's also really scary. Like, I don't like what they're doing. And now I watch it and I'm like, go you. <laughs> Rebecca Romaine sat in a chair for nine hours to put on those prosthetics just so you could think she was scary. So there you go. <laughs> nine hours every day, putting all that makeup on. Um, every day. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she was a badass. I, I love her in this movie. So. Well, if you notice uh, when, oh my gosh, Katniss, why am I blanking on her name? <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence. Thank you. When Jennifer Lawrence takes on the role, uh, as the movies progress, she gets less and less mystique. Like, she, yeah. <laughs> not only do you get more Jennifer Lawrence in that form, but like when she is in her mystique form, her like scales, they start to fade and suddenly she just has a blue face, but there's no scales. Um, it's just because the that process took so long and, and Jennifer Lawrence was, I guess, in a position where she could negotiate with the studio, I'm not going to do that. Whereas Rebecca Romaine, I mean, I mean, she, obviously she was a well-known actress, but I don't think uh, yeah, I don't think she had the ability to tell the studio I'm not going to do this because that's kind of the role she signed up for. So this is interesting. So she does a great job in this movie. Um, and so before we follow the the next piece of Senator Kelly's drama, there's this cool sequence of um, Jean Grey studying some x-rays of Logan and kind of showing the rest of the team, you know, here's all this adamantium that's been bonded to him. It's impossible to know how old he is given his healing factor. Um, he has no memory of his past. And so as a huge Wolverine fan, I'm wearing my Wolverine shirt today, by the way. Nice, <laughs> nice. Yeah, so so I just always love all of this background on him. And, and did, all of this did I tell you that I watched that? So that's the the Wolverine, right? The, the movie? Uh-huh. The Japan one. Did I tell you I watched that movie with Hugh Jackman? I don't think you told me, but I did see a picture of you and I was so jealous that that's the most awesome thing I've ever seen. Yeah, so. no, I mean, I wish I could say he knew who I was, but uh, no, I went to the New York premiere of that movie. Uh, I was working at Juilliard at the time and my boss was like, yeah, I'm going to the premiere. Do you want to go? And I was like, yeah, yes, please. And so I went to the New York premiere and Hugh Jackman was there and he watched the movie with us. Like he went and I, I, I had never had that experience. I had seen it happen. You know, the actors watching the premiere with the audience and I, yeah, I got a picture with him. I got his autograph. I still have those. Um, it was, it was amazing. It was such a cool experience, but, uh, but yeah, I was, I, I, I can say that I have watched a movie with Hugh Jackman. He was in the auditorium with me. <laughs> That's the most badass thing I've ever heard. So, um, so who is your fan cast for whatever they do with Wolverine in the future? I'm curious about this. I know it's not original and I know I've seen this floating around, but Taron Edgerton, like 100%. Like I, okay. I need it. I want it. I gotta have it. Like he, there's something about him that's so charming. I don't, you know who he is, right? Taron Edgerton? Definitely. Yeah. So yeah, he's been Kingsman. Uh, he was Elton John in Rocketman. Uh, he's been, he's, he's been in, in a lot of things and he's just, he's, he's so charming. So he can pull off that like bad boy, but I have a sensitive side that, that Logan has. And I'm, I'm not even referring to what Hugh Jackman did with the character because Hugh Jackman actually took Wolverine in a direction that was pretty new um wolverine wasn't the caring kind of father type figure in the animated series or the comics that you see him as in this movie to rogue like that's not typical of his character he's usually the more brutish like um you know sulking i'm a you know 
machine of death kind of character like he doesn't he's he's a short little hairy guy that has claws like he's not really like your your father figure um so i think taryn could do a blend of that and and be the like charming capture some of that hugh jackman quality but also just like the ferocity he's he's pretty jacked he's a handsome lad um and i i don't know like i could just see him with like the mutton chops and the hair and just like he's short enough to like be comic accurate. Like I could just see him like tearing it up and I would love to see Taron Edgerton as Wolverine. I think he'd be so good and he would be nice to look at. So <laughs> he has the looks and the skills. So let's do it. I do agree with all of this. Yeah, I think like if I, if there has to be a new Wolverine moving forward, I think that I would give him a shot. I, I think that no matter who it is, it's gonna take me a little bit of getting used to. Like I'll have to watch it more than once probably before I can really settle into it. But but I think he would probably be the top choice for me. So. Well, that I mean, that's how I am with Xavier, especially because they brought Patrick Stewart back for Multiverse of Madness. Like, mm-hmm. even, like, they had the opportunity to get us used to seeing somebody new in the role, like they did with um, John Krasinski. And, like, I don't think Krasinski's going to stick around after that. I think that was stunt casting because, you know, all the fans wanted him and Emily Blunt as uh, Reed and Sue Richards. But when they brought Patrick Stewart back, I'm like, oh, so we're just... <laughs> We're just not even going to try to get used to somebody else. We're just going to go back to what we know. And I mean, McAvoy did a great job, you know, with with what he had. But I mean, Patrick Stewart is Professor X. And I don't, I've seen the the casting floating around of Giancarlo Esposito. And I love that idea. Oh my gosh. I am obsessed with that actor. I loved him in Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul. I loved him in The Mandalorian. Uh, Dear White People, if you haven't watched Dear White People, please watch Dear White People. He's in that as well. Um, he's the narrator as well as he has like an actual acting role uh, late in later seasons. He's such a good actor and I would love, love, love him to be Xavier, but I'm, I just can't, I'm never going to be able to not see Patrick Stewart in that role. It's going to be difficult yeah, to see new people in these roles, but I, I do think Giancarlo Esposito would be fun because in every other iteration of Professor Xavier, he's a little bit more like manipulative. Is that a fair word to use? Like he kind of, of course, has, yeah. Like, you kind, yeah, 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 yeah. You kind of see that come out a little bit in the Last Stand when you find out that he, you know, manipulated Jean into getting that her alter ego under control. Um, but yeah, no, he's a horrible person. <laughs> Xavier is not a good person. I mean, he's a he's a good person in in comparison to some of the other people in this world, but by and large he's he's not the best person he's he does a lot of shady things to justify his means um in a very similar way that uh eric does and and i think that that's why they're such good foils of each other because they're willing to do horrible things if they think it justifies the outcome yeah so i think giancarlo esposito has played a lot of characters like that <laughs> like he can bring up that yeah um, most recently in the boys so yeah <laughs> i love it he's he's literally in like every fandom that i watch so i'm like more please yes <laughs> yeah one of mine was once upon a time i think he was the magic mirror and that like he's like the face inside the mirror and like kind of pulling the screen the strings with the evil queen and so he he had a really fun role in that and so um, it'll it'll be interesting while we're on the topic of a fan casting in the future it'll be very interesting to see what they do with magneto because as as we move on as you know in, in just literally in in terms of time we get further and further away from world war ii we get further and further away from the holocaust and the jewish aspect of magneto is such a central 
part of his character and his surviving the Holocaust. I mean, it's kind of hard to believe. And, and, you know, they could write it in different ways. You know, mutants have slower aging process. So maybe he just hasn't aged as quickly, but it's going to start to get a little weird if we're, you know, a hundred years out from when these horrible things happen. And we have someone that still is a survivor and is able to hold his own in a fight. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with Magneto. I don't know. I don't know that they can strip the Jewish history um, from the character that which is so important to him. Um, but perhaps they make you know maybe he's a descendant of a Holocaust survivor and and wants to shape the world in a way that it'll never be like what his you know parents or, or grandparents went through. Or maybe they do a slow aging thing. All of this is obviously still up in the air. I'll, I'll be very interested to see what direction they go in. But yeah, it's, it's starting as, as we move forward in time, it's starting to get less and less realistic that you have, you know, a Holocaust survivor who's still plotting the downfall of humankind. Yeah, all of that's true. And there's also the thing that I've seen people talk about a lot of like, how are they going to introduce mutation as like a new thing and why haven't they been around the whole time in the MCU so I'm really okay I have a theory on that okay Um, (laughs) I I have been wrong before let it be known I thought we were going to get the leader in She-Hulk but it looks like we're going to get the leader in the in Captain America New World Order um oh well who knows maybe we will get the leader in She-Hulk there's still what like four episodes left five episodes um so and it's been a it's been a fun cameo ride so far i know that we're not here to talk about she hulk but anyway so my theory is we know that wanda was always the scarlet witch and always had her hex magic Mm -hmm. however it wasn't until she came in contact with one of the infinity stones that it really activated her power it was almost like the it was almost like the um comp to going through puberty for mutants um because a lot of a lot of mutant powers in the comics and in the animated series they manifest at puberty they had to do a little retro retroactive storytelling in the mcu they started off saying wanda and pietro were just experimented on by hydra and that's how they got their powers we later find out in wandavision that that's not entirely true um the bot the uh missile that landed in her home that would have killed her and pietro Wanda used her probability magic to stop that from going off. So we, we, they, they do a little retroactive storytelling. We find out that she's always had the powers, but the exposure to the Mind Stone is what really activated these powers. Well, in Avengers Endgame, we hear Rocket say that um, they've been tracking these massive bursts of energy. So it happened once on Earth when Thanos snapped his fingers in Wakanda, and then it happened again when he was... Uh, in his garden when he destroyed the stones. Well, what else do we know? Not only did everyone on Earth get exposed to the snap once, but they got exposed to it again when Hulk snapped his fingers a second time. And we also know, sorry, I'm <laughs> all of this ties <laughs> together and it gets me really excited. I love this, we also yeah. know that Monica Rambo, her powers were activated by going through Wanda's hex magic, which again, all of this ties back to being exposure to the radiation from the stones. And Hulk says, when he's gonna snap, he says, it's like I was built for this. The radiation, he's the only person that can withstand it because of his exposure to gamma radiation. All of this tying together, I think the exposure to multiple bursts of radiation energy from the two snaps that happened mutated people on earth. And we're gonna start to see those powers come into play 
Now I could be completely wrong and they could have the mutants come in through an alternate reality and, you know, Dr. Strange or maybe America Chavez opens a portal and suddenly the mutants are here. But I think storytelling wise, it would make a lot of sense if they used something they've already started to build the, you know, they, they've already built the foundation for it with giving Monica uh, the powers that she'll have uh, as Photon going through Wanda's hex magic, Wanda being exposed to the stones. And we know that there was a large amount of radiation that came off of both snaps. So I say go that way. The humans were exposed twice to these huge bursts of energy. Maybe that activated the mutant gene. Um, and that's how we start to see their, their mutant powers manifest. I do like that, yeah. And that does explain you know, kind of what went on in Miss Marvel too. So uh, I like this theory. I hope that that's what they go with, so. Yeah, because I mean, with Miss Marvel, uh, so fun little bit of, uh, I guess, backstory, if you didn't know, but the creators of Miss Marvel always wanted her to be a mutant. Mm-hmm. But because of the rights issue with Fox owning the live action rights, um, Marvel Entertainment started cutting back on on mutant stories. So like the, the X-Men were essentially written out of the comics for a while because they didn't want to give Fox any more attention than needed because they were losing money to the studio because they were making films. And if they kept making comics about the films, people would buy the comics and go watch the movies. And they were essentially giving money to their to their competitor. So they they stopped writing X-Men comics and instead they started writing in human comics. And so they wanted to make Miss Marvel a mutant, but because of the rights issue that was going on between the two studios, they decided to make her an inhuman. So now that Disney acquired Fox and they have the mutant umbrella back, sorry, they have the mutant gene back under the umbrella was the word, was how I was trying to say that. Um, they, can, they can make her a mutant finally. And so uh, I was listening to an interview with the uh, director of Miss Marvel who said, or the, sorry, excuse me, the writer of Miss Marvel who said, yeah, um, we got the go ahead to make her a mutant. And that's why they did the little when they revealed that she had a mutation. So it could all tie together. I mean, uh, maybe there's something about the, uh, the, the bangles that we haven't entirely understood. I mean, it, we could tie that to the 10 rings and we're getting off track from X-Men, which is <laughs> what we're here to talk about. But I think it all ties together. I think when we get the mutants in the MCU, it's going to be tied to everything that we've talked about. There's something, there's some kind of energy that is causing these mutations. And for uh, Kamala, it was it was in the bands. It activated, it was always there for her, but something activated when she put on the band. That, yeah, I can't wait to see where the rest of this goes. So, <laughs> Sorry, I sidetracked us for like 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome. So, but in this movie, it's a machine that starts turning people into mutants. <laughs> so, um, so just to speed us through the rest of that, that piece, Senator Kelly is turned into a mutant through Magneto's magical machine that he's built. And um, so he escapes through his prison as a mutant. He's like this, I don't even know what to call it, like an amorphous jelly kind of person. <laughs> the water monster. Water monster, <laughs> so, um, so he, he slips through his prison. He kind of emerges on the beach and Stan Lee is there. It, take, it took me all these rewatches to finally see him the last time I watched him. Like, yeah, he's a hot dog vendor, I think, right? I think so, yeah. <laughs> um, so they're giving him all of these looks. I, I just love this scene where she, you know, kind of tries to read his mind and it totally freaks her out. Like, she's just like, whoa, you've seen some stuff, man. <laughs> yeah. And there's the, the line tied to this. There's the line that was in the, the trailer. I remember it so vividly when they were first promoting this movie. But uh, when Xavier says, 
experimentation on mutants. I've heard of it before, but I've never seen anything quite like this. And it like they just that was like the tagline of the trailer. They like they tied it. I I just remember that so vividly. There's also that tension with Scott going on the stay away from my girl thing. And and then Rogue hears Logan having a nightmare after the mind reading, and she goes and she wakes him up, and then he sits up in a fury and you know stabs her, and she recovers by borrowing his healing factor, and so that kind of sparks the whole drama with with Rogue, um, which Mystique will later use to her advantage uh, to get Rogue to run away from the mansion, and again at this point, I, we all think they're they want Logan. So her her getting rogue out of the mansion, we always if you're if this is your first time watching, sorry for spoiling, but yeah, we all of the signs pointed toward they wanted Logan. So we get our, our introduction to Cerebro and Professor X is using it to try to find Rogue. It won't work to find Magneto, so we get all of that background on how he's built everything to keep him out. Um, and so we get the whole kind of chase scene and everyone going after Rogue again. And so Logue takes Cyclops's motorcycle to go after her. Uh, Mystique sneaks in and tempers with Cerebro. And then there's this big confrontation that comes up at the, the train station. So Cyclops and Storm are there looking for her. Um, but Toad and Sabretooth are kind of sneaking around trying to get her too. And there's that big standoff at the train station. And, a big and, and don't, don't forget, um... After Xavier falls because Cerebro's tampered with, Gene is the one that has to use Cerebro to find Rogue and Logan. And that is actually the, the linchpin that sparks the Phoenix saga in this universe is her using Cerebro. It, 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 it breaks down the walls that Xavier had built to keep her from accessing that personality. That's true. I didn't think about that until this last rewatch where there, um, there's the, all that dialogue about how she's not supposed to use it. And she says like, for, for somebody like me, it would be dangerous. And I don't think I ever remember that dialogue until I rewatched it this last time. And I was like, oh. Yeah, so Xavier knew that her using Cerebro would kind of multiply her power sense, which would cause the walls that he built to crumble. So again, Xavier, not really a great guy, lied to her and said, if, if she used Cerebro, it would be dangerous. Dangerous for some people, but not necessarily for her. It would be dangerous for everyone around her, um, which I guess, you know, a good lie to tell it's a, it's a little white lie to keep everyone safe but yeah if he had been honest with her then that might have been a different conversation maybe she would have waited until xavier was able to but yeah for the sake of the for the story she needed to to wake up the phoenix um the next thing is the telepathic standoff where magneto kidnaps rogue and turns the police weapons against them and then we we know that charles is sitting in one of the the cars um, a little bit further off. And so there's that kind of standoff between them where Charles uses um, Sabretooth and, and Toad. And there, there's just that whole thing between them. I just love how how tense things are in that scene, like the, the gun firing. And... <laughs> I love when Magneto's like, I can't stop them all, Charles. You want to test your luck? <laughs> like, ah. Yeah. And then just like, uh, Patrick Stewart is just such a great actor. Like you see all that like turmoil he's going through, like just like that quiet, like, oh man, like what am I going to risk on this? <laughs> so Yeah. And the moment uh, when, right before, so just, to, I know that we've, we've been talking probably longer than <laughs> we should be, <laughs> but um, the moment before when Magneto first breaks up with the train cart, I love, love, love the, the dialogue where uh, 
Logan is like, what do you want from me? And he's like, oh, my, my poor boy, whoever said I wanted you, he just like shoves him like four cars deep. And that was like, I mean, they did a really good job hiding that twist because I did not see that coming. Like when he says like, whoever said I wanted you, I was like, oh, oh dang. like that's <laughs> all right, here we go. <laughs> so that, was, that was really cool. Like, does that remarkable metal run through your entire body? <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then, so the next thing is Senator Kelly showing up at the mansion to look for Jean, looking for Dr. Jean Grey. Um, and he dies on the table. He just like turns into a puddle of water and it's really gross. And that kind of freaked me out the first time I watched it. But, <laughs> um, and some other things, or right before that, Charles reads his mind to understand what happened to him. And so that's where he's getting all that background of the machine and what's going on with the radiation, breaking down his cells and understanding that Magneto is gonna be using Rogue to power this machine and that's why um, they took her. So he is telepathically injured by his next use of Cerebro. So it's right after this that he falls and then Magneto brings Rogue to the Statue, Statue of Liberty and has this whole conversation with her about the land of peace and kind of the promise that he was given as a child and how America has failed him. And I think that's just a really powerful monologue that he gives her at the Statue of Liberty. Um, and that kind of propels us into the, the last third of the movie, you know, all these standoffs where um, Cyclops flies the team to Liberty Island and they're, they're quipping about their uniforms. They're, they're all in leather instead of the yellow spandex. That yeah. <laughs> Logan says, do you people actually go outside in these things? And uh, Cyclops says, what would you prefer, yellow spandex? <laughs> Obviously, uh, wink and a nod to the classic comic book uh, outfits, especially Wolverine and his, his classic blue and yellow. Okay. Um, I did want to note, there's a line, and I don't know if there was a plan for the future for this or if like it was just a one-off whatever, but when Gene and Storm tell Magneto that Senator Kelly died, and Storm is like, no, it's true, I saw it. Magneto leans into her and says, are you sure you saw what you think you saw? And I always like clung to that line thinking that that meant something that like Senator Kelly was gonna come back in some way or, or they had plans for his character in the future. But it was just weird the way they like lingered on that scene and like made it seem important when he's just like, are you sure you saw what you think you saw? And I'm like, oh, maybe, maybe he's not dead. Maybe that's just part of his mutation. Um, is he could turn into a puddle of water and then reform himself somewhere else, you know? Uh, so I always, I always like clunk, even today, like I think of that, I'm like, what did they, were they going to do something with that? Like what happened there? Totally. Yeah. Because see, he does come back like as Mystique a few times, right? Like we see him again at the end of the movie. Well, yeah. Mystique uses him. Like he doesn't come back. Right. Mystique yeah. comes back as him, but we don't mm -hmm. ever see like the true Senator Kelly again. Because mm -hmm. like in X-Men 2, um, she like, Mystique uses him to get to Stryker um, because of their relationship. Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, we don't ever really see the true Senator Kelly ever again. Yeah, definitely. And, and I remember like both times, like seeing him at the end of this movie again, and then seeing him in X2. Like, I always wonder, like, didn't he die? And then they like flash in on the eye, like the yellow eye. And it's like, oh, okay, Mystique. But, <laughs> um, but the continuity of these movies is so weird that like, I, I wouldn't have put it past him to just be like, oh, he's back. You know? <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, so yeah, then, I mean, we have the big uh, Ellis Island 
kind of fight between all of the Brotherhood and the X-Men. And I know your favorite line with uh, Storm and Toad is coming up, so. Totally, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Your favorite part of the whole series. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you think about this line? about What happens to a Toad when it gets struck by lightning? (laughs) Uh, I was listening, I don't know if I was listening to a podcast or I read it in an article somewhere, but that line was intended to not be as cheesy because it was supposed to be a continuation of a series of previous scenes where toad i guess you know had had similar lines to his opponents like do you know what happens when a you know i spit this gunk in your face right i whatever i I don't know the exact dialogue but it was supposed to be a continuation where he was like taunting them throughout the movie and then at the end she says do you know what happens to a toad when it's struck by lightning same thing that happens to everything else. It was supposed to be in response to him because Toad, um, Todd Talensky, uh, as he is known, gotta love the names they come up with. Uh, he's, he's like a, he's a joker, like not like the joker, but he's like, he's a jokester. Like he, mm-hmm. he's a prankster. He's like, he's a, he's a little bit of a like weirdo uh, in, especially like in different alterations. I think at one point he was like a jester, like he's, he's been like a bunch of different things, but, but he's usually a clown to say the least. So like him, like taunting and teasing them during the fight and like Ray Park tried to do his best who, by the way, shout out to Darth Maul fans out there. Uh, Ray Park plays both Toad and Darth Maul, if you didn't know that. Um, but uh, he does his best with that little scene where he's doing like the dance fighting with Jean before he like spits the gunk in her face. Mm-hmm. Um, so like they tried to capture that element of Toad, but it, it, I think they needed a little bit more time with Toad to like really build that out. Um, but yeah, so so Storm's response was supposed to be part of a longer series of scenes, and they just got cut on the cutting room floor. So you get the Halle Berry famous line, <laughs> but, but you don't get any of the other. So it just seems like she said this like a one-off thing that makes no sense, and everyone is like, "That was that was dumb. Why did you say that?" <laughs> oh man, yeah, that, that gives totally new context to it. That I, I wish they would have kept all of that in there because. Because it is one of those things, like, I, I, I laugh at it, and, you know, it is one of my favorites because it's so, like, cringy, you know, <laughs> but, but I think, like, if they would have had all that build up. Too, yeah, and, and Halle, Berry's going, Halle Berry's going in and out of whatever accent she's trying to do for, like, an African dialect, and so, like, I mean, Halle Berry's a phenomenal actress, like, no, no shade there, but, um, yeah, I, I know a lot of the criticism around uh, Alexandra Ship and then Halle Berry and they keep getting these like black women who are not African women like like from Africa to play this African goddess and and they're these light-skinned black women and I know that that's been a point of controversy and so a lot of people are hoping that with the new uh, X-Men movie coming or series or whatever they're doing with the X-Men they haven't really Kevin Feige hasn't really been too clear about that um, but whatever they're doing they hope that if if and when we get Storm again that she's actually African and and like you know a dark-skinned African woman and and not the portrayal that that we've been getting with these light-skinned women and uh, again that is not my story to tell that is not my experience I I I am personally not critiquing it I just know that that's been kind of circulating um out in the atmosphere uh just people saying that that's kind of a a misstep uh for previous films um it would be really cool if they introduced Storm in Wakanda Forever but I think they're already doing so much to introduce 
um, Riri Williams as Ironheart, and they're bringing in Namor. So there's there's a lot going on already. So to add another character to that might be a lot, but who knows? Maybe like a post credit scene or something. Yeah, people will be really excited to see whoever they they name for her because she's such an icon. You know, there there's all these these fixtures that people you know everyone talks about who's going to be Wolverine going forward and you know Professor X there's been all that conversation about him but I think whenever you know they make the announcement of who Storm's going to be you know that's going to be one of the ones that, that everybody's waiting on so yeah and that my only the only thing that I am just so sad about is that I was so excited when, when Disney bought Fox because it was it was around the time New Mutants was coming out. So it was right before Chadwick Boseman's passing. And I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to finally see T'Challa and Storm in the same movie. Like we're finally going to get the king and queen of Wakanda. And then unfortunately <laughs> we lost Chadwick. Um, and, you know, for for reasons that the studio has made and and uh Feige has made and Ryan Coogler has made you know they've said they're not going to recast T'Challa at least not in this version of him so that leaves the door open for a T'Challa to come from you know the multiverse um people have said you know let's bring back uh Michael B. Jordan and all kinds of stuff but yeah I was really looking forward to seeing Storm and and T'Challa finally together and it's like fate will not let it happen they just like something keeps keeping them apart and I'm like this is so sad because all I want is the king and queen of Wakanda to, to be together, but nice. you know, it, is, it is what it is. So, um, so this last third of the movie, uh, just a, a big fun action sequence. Um, part of it is Magneto bolting everybody to the inside of the Statue of Liberty and kind of trapping them inside of the statue itself. Um, the UN summit begins on Liberty Island, and so the whole motivation behind this mutant machine that turns Senator Kelly is that Magneto wants to convert all of the, the the major world leaders and make them mutants so that they can you know be on the side of um, of mutation and not be you know pushing these mutant registration bills and they'll they'll finally be you know mutants themselves so there's not going to be all that controversy anymore. Um, I I love when Wolverine frees himself and then they, he goes to battle Sabretooth on top of the statue and he like shreds off like part of her crown <laughs> that's one of those scenes I remember so vividly yeah I had a toy of that really <laughs> I had like uh they made like an action figure of the Statue of Liberty head and like there was a piece of it that fell off like crown that fell off and then <laughs> like it had Wolverine and Sabretooth action figures it was so cool anyway like 12 year old me was ecstatic so <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> Um, and then when Magneto transfers his powers to Rogue and starts the machine, she gets that famous white streak in her hair. So how does that come about in the comics? Does she always have that or is that part of the Miss Marvel thing? Or... Uh, to the best of my memory, um, I, I don't think it was ever like, uh, there was no origin to the mm -hmm. streak. I think it was just, that was, that was her look. That was part of kind of who she was. I don't recall it being part of the Carol Danvers, uh, power conversion I could be I could be wrong I, I just I I just always remember Rogue having it I think it was it was never like a conversation and it wasn't like a streak the way they do it I I will say I commend I commend the the movie for for including the white streak the way they did because they had to make sense of it but Rogue always had more of like a white patch in the front of her hair it wasn't really a streak it was like it was like the front of her hair was just white and then red everywhere else um but yeah, I don't, I don't know if there was necessarily an origin story for that. I think the character was always just drawn that way. 
but okay. I could be wrong. I, I, I try to be as knowledgeable on these things as I can, but this one, <laughs> I, I, I must say, I, I don't know for sure. But she gets her white streak and the, the machine starts. And so they're trying to figure out a way to stop the machine without killing Rogue. That's kind of the whole drama behind this. And so Storm and Jean fly Wolverine up to the, the torch in the machine. Um, and then while Magneto is distracted with Wolverine, Cyclops finally takes his, his shot and then he's able to shoot and destroy the machine in the process. So I love the, the teamwork behind that. Like everybody plays their role. You know, they're either flying people around or taking their shots. Like they all get their moment to shine in this. In the end, uh, when the machine falls, Rogue is unconscious. And so Logan transfers some, transfers some of his health back to her. And it's just a, a beautiful moment. Like I love the music that's playing in there and like a call back to things that happened earlier in a really scary way. Like he's like, let me give you back some of, some of your health. Like, let me help you. <laughs> so then in the aftermath, uh, some things happen. You know, the Wolverine kind of gets a little bit of resolution. Xavier um, sends him to Alkali Lake to address some of the questions about his past. And that's a really nice segue to things that will happen in X2. Um, we see that the Mutant Registration Act doesn't pass, and again, this doesn't even get referenced a lot in the movie, but um, we get some closure on that act. It doesn't pass. Mystique is posing as the senator on TV, and then we get our final scene where Eric's imprisoned in this plastic cell playing chess with Charles, and it calls back to their first conversation in the movie, you know, hope and asking questions that they already know the answer to. And I love this closing dialogue with them where Eric insists that there's still a war coming against humankind. And Charles has this kind of ambiguous line where he just says, and I will always be there. And what I really love about this is that he doesn't necessarily finish it up. And given how complex their history is, like you could finish this in a number of ways. Like I'll always be there to stop you. Like I'll always be there as your friend. I could always be there to fight this war. You know, There are so many ways, things that this could mean. And that's what I really love about that conversation between them. Yeah, no, that's one of, that's uh, one of my favorite scenes in, in the whole series. And in that, that dialogue between the two of them literally sets the stage for X2 um, because uh, <laughs> Eric says to to Charles, does it ever wake you in the middle of the night? The feeling that one day they'll pass that foolish law and come for you and your children. And I, I that's off the top of my head. I didn't, I, I don't have that written down. I just know that line so well. Um, <laughs> and he says, it does indeed. And he says, and, and what do you do when you wake from that dream? And he says, I feel a great swell of pity for the poor soul who comes to that school looking for trouble. And that is literally segues directly into X2 when Stryker um, and his military personnel attack the mansion and Wolverine cuts up most of them. <laughs> um, but, you know, they do kidnap some of the kids and it sets off the war between mankind and mutant kind and um it it's what leads you know to magneto's next plot which is to kill all the humans using cerebro but that's that's a plot line for x2 that i'm sure you'll eventually get to um <laughs> but but yeah that that line has so much power um and you know i i just i love their chemistry together it's it's so cool to see them kind of uh, not only play chess literally, but also uh, verbally, mentally. They're, they're always playing chess with each other, either on a chess board or in their minds. Um, they're always trying to get, you know, one or two steps ahead of each other. 
so yeah, great, great movie, great memories. Uh, love that scene, love that line. Um, yeah. Awesome movie. Yeah, it still holds up very well for me. And 22 years later, it's still one of my favorites. And I think it's on par with my love for the MCU, despite some of the shortcomings of the rest of the franchise. So I think this movie stands alone in a really cool way. Um, what do you think went right in this movie and what should the MCU try to do better? Let's let's think about that maybe. Uh, okay, so I don't want to wait uh, however long it takes for you to get to Multiverse of Madness on your rewatch because I know that that's going to be quite a while. Um, <laughs> and, and I just wanted to make note of how they're connecting the multiverse uh, together. So they're doing, I mean, again, these could just be winks and nods. Who, who knows kind of what the creative decisions behind this are. But um, in X-Men Days of Future Pass, when uh, McAvoy and, Char and uh, Patrick Stewart are having their little mental conversation, um, Xavier says to him, just because a person uh, what is it just because a person loses their way doesn't mean that they're lost forever or something like yes. that <laughs> and that's what gets young Charles to kind of wake up from this this uh, unfortunate like kind of stump he's in and 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 come back and rally the team together for that film that is the line that Xavier says in defense of Doctor Strange in Multiverse of Madness and my I got chills. I'm getting chills right now just thinking about it. I got, I got chills when Stuart said that about Doctor Strange, when he says just because somebody stumbles and falls doesn't mean that they're lost forever, or stumbles and loses their way doesn't mean that they're lost forever. And it's just the way that they're seeding these things. It's just so cool as a fan to see uh, all of these things come together. You know, technically, I, the, the version of Xavier they use in Multiverse of Madness is the one from the 97 TV show because he has the floating yellow chair, or at least, you know, we think it's, or a, a similar version to that. So it's not technically the one from this universe of X-Men movies that we just watched, but he says the same line that he said to his younger self. And so it's all kind of connected, which means technically McAvoy and Fassbender are in the MCU <laughs> is the log, <laughs> the, the log end of that. Um, but yeah, no, it's just cool. It's, I mean, everything that they've done with Andrew and, and Toby uh, for the Spider-Man franchise and bringing them in. So technically now Spider-Man one, two, three, amazing one and two, those are all technically canon to the MCU now because of, of what they did with No Way Home. So yeah, I would like to see in a perfect world, I would like to see them start very basic with, with the first class of mutants that are actually the first class from, from the comics. Um, so I want to see like Iceman, Beast, uh, Jean Grey, maybe as, as Marvel Girl. I don't know how they would do that with so many Miss Marvel characters. We have Miss Marvel, Captain Marvel, Photon. So like maybe they won't call Jean that, but that was her original name. Um, but, you know, bring in, bring in that first class of students, Storm, Beast, and, and just like have them be, okay, it was not executed well, the New Mutants movie, the one with Maisie Williams and, and that fun cast of characters, it wasn't executed well, but the core concept was so cool. The idea of focusing on five or six students in a mansion and, and, and they're discovering their powers and they're interacting with each other. We have all of these like end of the world movies where every like every super villain is trying to destroy everything. But like 
what I love about the storytelling from some of these things is how intimate the conversations are and how important those are to the characters. And with the X-Men, knowing that they're, you know, a comp for the civil rights movement, knowing that the mutant gene is a comp for underrepresented identities, put a group of people in a room together, and just let them talk. Those are some of my favorite Game of Thrones episodes where you just have a group of people in a room talking and, 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 and what that means. Um, that's what I want to see. I don't need to see the big spectacle. I don't need to see an end of the world mutant film. I just want to see what they tried to do with new mutants, but better. <laughs> like I, I want to see a group of people coming together, learning that they have these powers and what it means for them and the, the people they love. And that's it. I don't need to see another, I mean, eventually I'd like to see the Sentinels. And I think that there's a really cool way to tie sword into the development of the Sentinels um, and everything going on in Miss Marvel with damage control. And, and you could, you could see how they could do the Sentinels that way. Um, but I don't need that right away. I, I, I really want an intimate storytelling experience similar to the first X-Men movie. I mean, they, they did it in that movie. Like I said, it wasn't a big spectacle. There weren't a ton of powers. It was people talking <laughs> for most of the movie. And it still resonates today. And it's still powerful today. And a lot of the lines and a lot of the dialogue, it still matters in, in, our, in our current society. So that's what I want. I want, I want good character development. I want good uh, storytelling. I, want, I, I don't need flashy. I don't need flashy. I just want, I just want good characters. I agree. I agree with all of that. And I think that's what I like about how we're getting these little bits and teases of X-Men in the MCU right now. Like do we right now we just know of this one mutant, Miss Marvel. And and you know, I'm sure we're probably gonna get these slow builds up buildups until we finally have an X-Men team up. And I think that's really cool because now we have a really good character development for the first mutant, right? And um, and I think we can we can do more that way. Like we can see, you know, these individuals getting introduced and get to care about them as people. Then see how they interact before we just get like, here's all the X Men. We'll get like five minutes of screen time with each of them, you know. <laughs> so, so I think I, I I wouldn't be opposed to them going back to the drawing board. You know, the way that they started the Avengers. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I I know that. I, not everyone will be in this camp and a lot of people just want the team up X-Men, but give me a Cyclops movie that's yeah. just about, you know, his, you know, said it, his, his parents, um, they die in the plane crash. The same plane crash gives him and Havoc their powers. Well, not gives them, but manifest their powers. Give me that story of a young Scott Summers having to figure out, like he has these blasts of energy coming out of his eyes that he can't control give me that and i don't need an x-men movie yet give me a movie about gene who i mean it could be a it could be a thriller a young girl realizing she can control minds like how cool would that be to just have a gene gray movie give me a storm movie where you know you have aurora monroe growing up in africa and realizing that she can control the weather and what that means for the people around her like people started to worship her as a goddess because she could control the weather in africa like give me that movie and then bring the X-Men together, like then do the team up um, and go back to the drawing board, like what they did with the Avengers. I think that would be really cool to go that direction. I don't think they're going to, I think we're going to get a team up first, um, but who knows at the end of uh, the Marvels in 2023, maybe Xavier will show up to recruit Kamala for the school for gifted youngsters. Who knows? Like I, I, I think the door is kind of open, but I would love to see those like individual pieces come together to, to create the whole rather than 
kind of start with the team because we saw with uh, I happen to be a fan of the Eternals, but I know a lot of people aren't. But we saw, what happened. We, we saw what happened with the Eternals when they had to introduce, what, 12 characters in one movie? Um, and and that's, you know, the 10 Eternals and then Dane, uh, so uh, Kit Harrington's character. And then you have the villain who was very poorly developed in that movie. Um, well, I guess it depends who, who you view as the villain, but I won't spoil that movie. Um, but yeah so you saw what happened with inhumans like it or not inhumans well you also saw what happened with humans that was a mess but you saw <laughs> what happened with uh the eternals when they tried to introduce so many characters at once thankfully they have they have the history of the x-men for the fan base to kind of latch onto, and so they're not like introducing wolverine or cyclops for the first time but they do have to launch a, a series of new characters and so i think what they did in 2008 worked really well and why not try to recapture that magic mm -hmm. yeah, totally especially because i know they've already planned at least the next 10 years of the mcu and so you can just imagine that there's like all these little gems hiding and ready to be revealed and again in, we in feige we trust right <laughs> totally <laughs> Um, so this has been awesome. Do you have any other like closing thoughts about the X-Men or this movie? Or uh, I apologize to your listeners for being so verbose. Um, this is just a, a subject area that I, you know, it's near and dear to me. I, uh, Halloween, I'm, I've been Wolverine. Uh, I've, I've cosplayed as, I, I try to cosplay as other characters, but given my size, you know, it, I, it wouldn't make sense for me to be some of the characters. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I mean, this is just, this is a piece of, of the fandom that just generally, like genuinely and generally means so much to me. Um, give me, I swear if they give me a Nightcrawler movie, I will lose my mind. And I'm not talking about the Jake Gyllenhaal one, although I do love that Jake Gyllenhaal Nightcrawler movie. Um, but yeah, I want to see, I want to see a movie where uh, Mystique has to sacrifice her infant to get away from hunters and throws them in, in the river and we find out that that's a young kurt wagner who becomes nightcrawler like give me that movie i want to see it i would love to see it but yeah uh closing words uh mutant and proud <laughs> mutant and proud mutant and proud so there you have it folks a story with many layers of meaning that continue to resonate almost 60 years after the x-men were created I can't wait to see if Corey's predictions on the, on the mutants were correct and how they'll tie into the larger MCU. We'll come back to this little universe later because this series alone spanned 13 movies all the way up to new mutants and there are a lot of gems in this franchise. Thanks for indulging and diving in with us. If you're interested in chatting with me about another Marvel movie that doesn't take place in the MCU, drop me a line. The Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies or the Garfield ones, Blade, Howard the Duck, Fantastic Four, all of these count. But up next, we're returning to the sacred timeline and picking up where we left off in the MCU. The next movie is number eight, which is Thor, The Dark World. Katie Salaitis is coming back to help me shed some light on this dark place, one that doesn't necessarily get a lot of love from the fandom. Why is that? And are there any redeeming qualities to one of the lowest rated movies in the MCU? We'll see you back in Asgard, and the Nine Realms. The Quantum Realm has no affiliation with Marvel Studios or any other branch of Marvel Entertainment. The opinions expressed by the participants are all theirs and do not reflect any companies or organizations they're connected to. 
Thank you so much for listening. And until the next time, be well.